Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush and this is a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. I loved speaking with today's guest. A strong mission runs through everything Lauren does. She was quite rightly awarded an OBE in 2017 for services to design and diversity. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from digging into the change Lauren is trying to make when it comes to empowering women, the story behind her business Upfront, which helps women find their voice on stage and build confidence more broadly. We explore what imposter syndrome really means and why it exists. We also touch on the infamous Basecamp memo from last week and the reaction to that. If you learned something during this episode, please leave a rating or a review in your podcast app. Here goes. Lauren, hello and thank you for joining me on the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So we'll kick things off as we do with every discussion by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? Mm -hmm. So the wrong I want to write is that women are made to feel less than. Because nobody is born feeling less than. That is something that you are taught to believe about yourself from institutions, society, cultural norms. And we know that right now there is a really strong bias of the systems that we live and work and play in are designed in a way that makes women feel less than. And that is the mission that I am on to to right that wrong. And yeah, I want to dive into all the detail around all the work that you're doing. I guess from a uh, from a starting point, what's been your journey in terms of this becoming uh, clearer and clearer in your mind, essentially, as you say, that women, no one is born to be less than, it's a systemic issue. How has that picture become clearer and clearer for you as, as, you've, as you've learned? Sure. And you know what, it's definitely still becoming clearer every day. You know, I've really accepted the fact that this is a lifelong journey, you know, lifelong work. There is no destination or finish line, if you like, because intersectionality and gender equality is complex. Um, but And my, my journey of that, I think, was, you know, one that started definitely from a place of naivety. So, you know, went to art school to study design, was on a mission to be the next Steve Jobs, uh, discovered service design, wanted to do that work and realised couldn't really do that work in Scotland uh, because all the jobs were in London. So I co-founded a service design agency and built that consultancy up and, and led that for seven years. And through that work, I... Firstly, out of necessity, had to get on stage and get on podcasts and get in spaces in front of people to educate and evangelise this discipline of service design, which, you know, 10, 15 years ago was still very new and unknown and unfamiliar. So by necessity, I had to put, you know, I, I put myself into these positions. And, you know, despite the fact that I was 23, that wasn't too difficult you know, because I'm white, I'm extroverted, I'm pretty and in inverted commas, you know, I'm I'm quite palatable um, in a way that, you know, if I had different characteristics, I'm sure that would have been much 
harder. But what happened through that work and those experiences, for me, I was just very confused as to why I was the only woman in the room, why I would speak at conferences in the design community, and it would be the same men telling the same stories over and over again. And, you know, I always try and follow Swiss Mrs. Advice, Tina Ross Eisenberg, the founder of Creative Mornings. She talks about you're only allowed to complain three times and then you need to try and do something about it. Mm-hmm. And it did kind of reach a, a peak moment when I was at a conference in Bristol, the only woman on the entire conference programme. And I decided to address it in my speech um, and ask the question, again, from a very naive, um, privileged pers- perspective, this was the first time that I had kind of had access to witness this inequality, oppression play out. And that was my, that was the kind of first phase of my journey of understanding that, you know, women are not a, a, a homogenous group. You know, we are we are no equal as a group than men and women are. And, you know, depending on your race and your class and your gender and your economic background and your education, that is going to determine how the world treats you and the messages the world gives you about your worth and your skill set and your potential to, to contribute to the world. Um, and when I kind of looked up and out, around okay so where 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 do we go like where are the courses or the books or the podcasts that women black women brown women trans women you know where where do they go to 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 learn how to speak in public to learn how to tell their story to learn how to talk about their work in a way that feels good for them and there really isn't much out there. The world is full of people like Tony Robbins and Gary Vee who, you know, represent a very masculine American white version of confidence and power. And I think that that is completely out of date. You know, there is a there's a demand and a necessity for a new conversation around confidence and power that is intersectional, that is feminist. And that is fixing the system, not trying to fix women. You know, I think a lot of the work in the space is very focused on telling the woman she has to fix herself. You know, if only I could be more productive or squeeze more hours in my day or meditate more. It's like these things will not, you know, they they ignore the very, very stark systemic barriers that exist Mm. so yeah that's the journey I'm on every day when it comes to that you mentioned the events and conferences and stuff being I guess a a moment when these things become often the most obvious the most visible I guess some people might think oh well these problems pervade so many different parts of where we live and parts of society why get so hung up on who's on stage Mm -hmm. but I think when you think about it a little bit more, it's like that's a moment when probably the likes of when you talk about big masculine voices in an industry, it's like when they are amplified even more. And I guess what what impression does that give off to um, to to an audience about what they might be able to achieve? 
100%. It's this notion of you can't be what you can't see. Now, do I think the notion of putting one human being on a raised platform and inviting them to talk to thousands of humans who will sit and lap up their every word, of course that's problematic. You know, there's lots of things about conferences and the dynamic of speaker and audience that that aren't ideal, but the reality is that model is not going anywhere fast. And there are lots and lots of examples in the world where that model is incredibly empowering and transformative and, you know, leads to brilliant things, new ideas, new relationships, new businesses, all sorts of good things. And, you know, you're right that I... I, when I first had those conversations that day in Bristol, you know, I had so many people talking to me about their story of why they would never see themselves as somebody who could stand on a stage and tell their story. And you're right, it's complex. There's so many different facets. But, you know, the designer in me, I'm trained to zoom in on one insight. And the insight that kept coming up was, there's no way to practice standing up on a stage in front of people. And that idea is so terrifying that most people very early on in their career just make a decision, whether unconscious or not, that that's not something I'm ever going to do. That's not for me. It's what other people do. And that means that the world is then, you know, we don't get access to their ideas, to their stories, to their lived experiences and it means that the stories and the ideas that we do get access to are ones that are usually masculine and white and kind of reinforcing the dominant narrative which you know we can all agree is not you know we need to turn on the news it's not serving us anymore that's very obvious and very clear um but as as my kind of work evolved so it started being super focused on the stage we had the big red upfront sofa, people with stage fright sat on there and we had 500 people sit on the sofa around the world. And this was something I was, you know, it didn't make any money. It was on the side of my day job. I was doing it because I knew it helped people who had the experience. But, you know, over time, as I had conversations with them, they were like, okay, I'm in now. Like, what happens next? Do you have a book or a podcast or a course? And that was when I looked at the market and decided to build a course. And that was when Upfront became a business, which it is now. Um, you know, we have customers, we sell products, we're on a mission. Um, but it, it it didn't start out with that intention. And, you know, now we're serving, you know, now being on stage is just a very small part of the work that we do. Because when we talk about public speaking, that's everything from meeting somebody for a coffee to what you and I are doing now to being on stage in the more kind of traditional sense. Hey there, just a quick interruption to invite you to join the Journey Further book club. This is a fantastic community run by my colleague Isabel, where we share bite-sized insight from the world's best business books, all aimed at helping you grow and develop at work and in your personal life. It's completely free to join. takes just one minute to sign up. Click the link in the show notes or head to journeyfurther.com. Now back to Lauren. 
just quickly on the on the on the sofa story because I think it is so interesting. I think it really taps into the thing where like when we've done events for example you always see the speakers like trying to practice their lines beforehand like trying to practice what they're going to say but yeah. actually what the sofa thing demonstrates is they don't necessarily need to practice what they're going to say they need practice being in front of an audience they need practice feeling comfortable on a stage it's like the the perception of what you need to practice is kind of wrong or what you need experience doing is is skewed there's two bits to that. I don't think it's necessarily skewed. I just think it happens in the wrong order. So we so we we skip it. We leap over a huge, you know, a bundle of barriers to here's how to make slides, here's how to craft a story, here's how to introduce yourself, and that's not what the sofa the sofa wasn't targeting those people who need to rehearse their lines because they're already there. And they're already ready to walk out and feel like I'm gonna say I'm gonna say some lines to these people and they're gonna listen. The people that I wanted to work with was people who, you know, wouldn't have felt safe or comfortable to even to even say their name and introduce themselves in that environment. And I think the the power of having the couch and having people share that experiences, they got to see what you just described. So they got to see the speaker pacing, asking for an extra glass of water, sweating, you know, all the things that people like you and I who speak on stage and run events, we see that stuff all the time. We know that people who appear polished and brilliant and every single sentence lands is because they have rehearsed to death. You know, they have been practicing and practicing. They're probably still a bit nervous. They've probably had to give themselves a pep talk, all that stuff. But most people don't have access to that behind the scenes part. So they live their life comparing their, uh, you know, their kind of wobbly, nervous version of themselves to somebody's most confident, polished showreel, which of course is going to be difficult and, and hard. Mm. So that's part of the power of it. It was it was helping people, you know, they would walk away and say, Oh my god, I can't believe I can't believe somebody like Nathan had to practice lines. You know, that was just like even I remember somebody saying I had no idea that they could see their slides. You know, even that, like these tiny details that, you know, are often behind closed doors. So when it comes to the 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 upfront in in its current form, then focused on um, the the bonds as you as you describe them, yeah. Um, how does that work? Like, what are the fundamentals of, of of those courses and the training that you provide? And and I guess how has it developed since you first started delivering it? Yeah. So the bond bond is the collective noun for a group of women, which I'm just like still so excited about because I didn't even know that was a word. And I put a tweet out saying, okay, internet, I need I need like a collective noun for for what I'm building because cohort, crew, you know, it's felt a bit not very special. And there was some amazing ones like uh, a group of ladybirds is called a loveliness <laughs> and a group of flamingos is like a sparkle or something there's so many that are just like delicious so discovered this idea and and so now we have we have a six-week online program and we have a membership community 
So each group of women that go through the six-week cohort, uh, the six-week programme is its own cohort, its own bond. So we are on bond number four, which starts on June 7th. We've had 490 women from 25 different countries have taken part in a bond so far. And the bond is a combination of pre-recorded content, live content and the community to essentially help you unlearn a lot of the unhelpful stories and myths that you've been taught to believe about yourself and believe about confidence. Number one being the problem exists with the system, not yourself. You know, for a lot of women that join the bond, that is an incredibly transformative truth to realize. And so we're going to say something. Yeah, no, and I was saying, and, and that's the exact that that's something which comes so far before, so much earlier than getting on a stage exactly. or presenting something, which I find really interesting. Yeah. So the so the the four week program is so for the kind of three four years prior to twenty twenty, I used to run in person one day or two day workshops. For businesses, so we did work with people like Co-op and Accenture, and then I would also run one-day sessions where anybody could come along and buy a ticket. And I did that for three or four years. You know, they would sell out every time. Really brilliant feedback and impact. So what I did was take everything I learned from those sessions and created a six-week online version. And it's essentially split into three chunks. The first piece is about your mindset the unlearning, the the myths we need to bust around our relationship with confidence and power. The second piece is about the physicality of showing up, telling stories, you know, understanding how to use your voice as a tool, you know, things like posture and eye contact. And of course, you know, again, what the conversations I've been having this week is about how we tailor those stories for women who are neurodivergent because that's uh, another problem that exists with a lot of the products in the market is they are preaching a version of confidence that really only applies if you're neurotypical Mm. so that's a kind of something I'm working on at the moment and then the third piece of stuff is around the is around power and privilege so we do a lot of work on white privilege being anti-racist and also the kind of core of it all is, you know, once you graduate from this bond, you are going to have more power. You're going to show up differently. That might mean pay rises, new job titles. It might mean changes in your home and your relationship. And I want you to do all that whilst building ladders around you and amplifying others. And, you know, if if you are white doing that whilst recognizing the privilege that your whiteness is giving you in that journey Mm. so those are the three the three main components and the first bond was such a success you know the day it ended I people emailing me saying like this can't I just can't have this be over like it's this is too it's adding too much value I don't know what I would do without it so that was what led to me creating a membership space so this it's a it's a global membership with people from all over the world, you know, it's 
$20 a month and you have access to me, access to the Bond community. We have four events every month with different experts and it's a place where you learn to keep practicing these muscles because it's all a muscle. Same way you learn to play basketball or learn to ship a podcast. You can learn to be confident. You can learn to tell your story. You can learn to introduce yourself. So yeah, that's what the bond's all about. Obviously, looking back over the last twelve months, has like the sort of remoteness and the ver- the the increased virtual conversations that we're all having, is that is that helping people find their confidence in some aspects, but also probably causing lots of other problems at the same time? Mm. I think it's a mixed bag. You know, I think on one hand, I think a really powerful shift that has happened is leaders, bosses, managers, organisations have shown their true selves. And a lot of people, particularly women, because we know that women have bore the brunt of this pandemic more than men have. All of the data tells us that. They are deciding, well, this is not for me anymore. And they are starting their own businesses. They're becoming freelance. They're moving to different organisations. So I think there's an incredible power in that I think what's not working well is when you are forced to communicate remotely and digitally there needs to be more thought and intention into how you create those spaces that in a way that feels safe and welcoming for everybody and I know that for a lot of black and brown women for a lot of neurodivergent women, you know, there's things that, that that's not been the case and that this mm. this way of communicating has led to them feeling isolated, them feeling they can't speak up, them feeling they're not being heard. So I think it's I think it's mixed and I think it's gonna be a long time, I feel, until we truly understand the impact of what this you know, very sudden shift to working from home during a global pandemic. You know, then we had the American election and we have, you know, one of the most significant moments in black history ever. You know, yesterday we had Basecamp make an announcement to essentially announce to the world that they are not an anti-racist organisation. And that's a lot. Like that is a lot of trauma for a lot of people. But then again, you know, on the other side, there's all these stories and joy of people. I know for me, like the bonds are, we have people from Australia, America, Hong Kong in the same call. And it's like, that would never have happened before COVID. And there's something really beautiful and genuinely inclusive about that. But it's, it's complicated. Yeah, it is. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to try and, I guess, advocate and support people, whether it's people they work with or it might be their friends, to try and overcome some of these the, these 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 barriers which face them? Yeah, what advice would you give to someone? Yeah, who wants to kind of advocate? So, I mean, this was a conversation that I had with a lot of people with men in mind when the Sarah Everard's murder, you know, made the headlines. And I think the first thing is 
for you to recognize that you know it starts in your house in your team in your office at the gym you know at the pub wherever you 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 hang out and spend time to be the person who calls out and says like that's not an okay thing to say or you know we don't talk about women that way here or you know whose voice is not in this room you know I think I think that's the first piece then the second piece is you know just really doing the work of educating yourself you know which I think ideally we all should be doing as much as we possibly can because the information is there the books are there the talks are there especially if you're an organization there's some absolutely incredible consultants that you can pay because you know diversity and inclusion work is an expertise it's a feel it's a discipline of craft and rigor and there are people who have been doing this work for decades and I think often you know I heard somebody use the phrase like DIY DEI so that people just try and do it themselves and that's kind of odd because we can't do it ourselves we need to pay the experts to help us and then I think the third thing um is ultimately about moving out the way you know when it's about passing passing your microphone whether very literally as you did with your colleague Isabel I think last for the last podcast yeah or metaphorically you know I don't need to leave this meeting I don't need to be the person who does this client pitch and and last one (laughs) I can talk about this for a while, is to tell to tell women and people of colour in your life what you earn. That's a really big one. Talk about what you earn. Okay, yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, on that last point, I mean, there's so much there on, the, on like the pay transparency point. It's something which we've had lots of conversations about at work, but that's a really interesting point. And you, you, you kind of think that that's a really sort of powerful thing to do. Oh, 100%, because we know... And, you know, there's data that, that shows when you have that information. Like, if you if you ask the majority of women, people of colour, who have gone through the process of asking for more, getting the, doing the negotiation, getting a rise, if you ask most of them what sparked that, what, what was the catalyst for them going on that journey, mm-hmm. it will be because they overheard or had an advocate, an ally, tell them what they earn, either a peer or somebody, even if it's somebody above them in the in the kind of organisation or the, or the hierarchy, it's still incredibly useful because we know that the, the wealth gap exists, we know that the gender pay gap exists, the race pay gap exists, and by having those conversations, you are... Like you're, you're, that's how you break the system because it can't be argued against. This is what I get paid. You do the same job as me. What do you get paid? And of course, it's fucking awkward and makes us sweat and feel sick. Of course, it does because we are brought up to believe. We're brought up to be to be told. And I'm learning this is massive in Sweden. Talking about money is like no, 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 no. That's not a thing. What, <laughs> what even even less so than in the UK? Yeah. Right, okay, interesting. And you know, we are we are we're brought up to believe it's a taboo that and taboos exist 
to maintain the status quo. That's why they're there. It's like that's why we don't talk about death or periods or miscarriage or all of these things that are super common in everybody's everyday life, but yet we've decided that we don't really talk about them. Mm. And that means those things don't change. That's so interesting. Like a person going into a meeting trying to ask for for a pay rise, probably suffering from the real sort of lack of confidence, nerves, lots of the stuff which you and upfront are trying to coach people to overcome. But I guess having just a solid piece of data or insight to say, well, I know that X person is getting paid this much to do a yeah. similar thing, can and, help know, someone overcome that so easily. A hundred percent. And you know, there's ways to do it which. Because I know people listen to that would think, well, that feels scary because then they ask me not to tell anybody and I would get in trouble for telling, you know, it's, uh, you know, people feel threatened by that and that's very valid and real. And I think there's ways to to do it that are not is not necessarily, you know, finger pointing or naming specific individuals that still make the organization understand, you know, I have, a, I have this information, I know this fact to be true, so what are we going to do about it? And, you know, it also gives that person power to understand if the organization's going to say, well, actually, we're not going to do anything about it, then they can get the fuck out of there and go and work somewhere where they will be valued and taken seriously. Yeah, completely. I wanted to ask you a little bit about imposter syndrome. It's it's a sort of it's almost becoming a bit of a like a, a, a buzzwordy phrase yeah. now that you sit here about a lot on podcasts and loads of content around. Uh, and I think I read something you'd wrote on my, it might have been on your website, which uh, which kind of demystified a little bit about imposter syndrome that it's not just this sort of surface level feeling that it's something which runs much deeper. Yeah, it's a big one because you're right. It's very trendy just now. And in many ways, that's a super good thing because it's now in mainstream vocabulary. It's now leading to, I think, a lot of people finding solidarity in, I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only one that had these feelings of feeling like a fraud, feeling like I'm going to be found out. But the important thing to say about imposter syndrome is that it's, I would say it's predominantly very misunderstood you know it's confused with self-doubt that's it's not the same thing and the fact that it's even called a syndrome mm. is is problematic um and the, the 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 reality is when you are operating showing up in spaces where people who look and sound like you haven't always been there, haven't always been welcome, haven't always thrived in those environments. Now, that might be trying to raise venture capital money. That might be being an accountant or that might be working in a law firm. Um, when When that happens, it's very natural that you are going to feel like an outsider. That is a natural consequence of if you are not white, male, middle to upper class, privately educated, you're going to feel like you don't fit in in a lot of spaces because a lot of spaces for a long time have been solely for that group. 
And that then we're talking about bias, we're talking about racism and sexism and ageism. And that's the thing to talk about rather than mm. the individual feeling like I don't belong. Now, sure, I do work to help the individual, particularly women, understand this. This is not something to be fixed. It's not a flaw. It's not something that you can go join a webinar about and then it'll go away. You know, knowledge is power. Like, educate yourself on, okay, what does this really mean? And what does that mean for me and, you know, the work that I'm doing and, and how and how I'm showing up? You know, does Boris Johnson ever have imposter syndrome? No. Is he completely incompetent? Should he feel like a fraud? Should he not have the job he has? Yes. You know, and, I, and yeah. that's that's what I have to say on imposter that, syndrome. That, that's the crux of it, yeah. I guess, is that, is that thing that you were saying at the very start, it's like no one is born less than you're, you, you, you're, you're not, uh, it's not about you being an imposter, it's about you having to engage in a system which which is which where the odds are where the odds are against you i wanted to ask you Lauren, about about uh sort of defining success like you've been worked from so many businesses founded so many businesses uh how do you sort of define the success of uh up front and also how do you sort of uh i know you posted about this recently how do you sort of personally define success for yourself mm. yeah listen i have been thinking about this a lot lately um i think because i made a recent shift in my work to walk away from a business that i set up 15 months ago to focus solely on upfront which i set up in 2016 and of course part of that process has been me saying okay what does success look like for upfront what do I want this to become? And the few things that I'm kind of exploring there. So one is the kind of metric of how many women we impact and reach. So, you know, I would like to impact over a million women in the next two to three years. Another piece is about what... I then do with the the profits that uh, the profits that are generated from that work, and I would like to create a fund or some sort of funding vehicle to fund women and underrepresented founders. So those are the, and then I think the I think the third one is kind of harder to pin down, but. It's about the, the kind of notion and the idea of being upfront, having an upfront moment, becoming part of our mainstream vocabulary. And I think there's two examples mm. which I kind of look at. So one is Brenny Brown and her work that she has done around vulnerability. Now, her work has trans transformed vulnerability from something we never really heard about or talked about, and if we did, it was a bit awkward, to something that we're all like how to be more vulnerable at work you know it's like fully mm. fully in a lot yeah, of you know, vulnerability yeah yeah it's in a lot of professional environments that's a very 
I mean, I'm not naive that it's not the majority of organizations, but there's enough that it's changing the tide. And mm. I want to, I want the same thing to happen for confidence because the word confidence is completely misunderstood. It's full of negative connotations and we need to redefine what confidence means, reimagine what it means, reconfigure all the unhelpful attitudes that exist around confidence. And I, the other one is um, Eat, Pray, Love, which I must say I am not a fan of that movie. Um, but what has the success of that book in that movie means that when you hear somebody saying she's having an Eat, Pray, Love moment everybody knows exactly what's happening that woman's had a crisis in her work or her marriage and she's got on a plane or she's gone on a hike or whatever and it's like that's now in our it's a it's a phrase that we understand and recognize and I want up front to do the same mm. so what should people what what do you want people to understand confidence to mean where do you want people to get to with that word with that idea and the first thing is that it is not innate. It's something that you can learn. It's a muscle that you build. It's a practice. And the second thing is confidence is and can be kind, gentle, soft, powerful, and all the things we're taught that it mm. can't be because it's at odds with, I think. Those are the main those are the main two changes. Um and for for success for me, I mean, this is definitely something that is definitely it's not set in stone. It's something that is will changes over time. Uh, but the kind of three buckets of stuff I'm thinking about just now. So one is free time, like my relationship with my time, is a is for me the biggest currency of success. I have to compare to have complete control over my time. If I wake up on a Wednesday and feel like going to the cinema, I'm going to do that. You know, going for a two-hour walk, which two years ago I might have thought was a bit unproductive, not that good a use of time, I now see as, you know, that's the ultimate goal, to be able to, mm. to have these moments in your day and do things depending on where your mood is and where your energy is rather than do things that, your calendar is asking you to do or a client or an employer or whatever that might be so I think uh, there's definitely time free time is a big one and for me that's about reframing how I think about money and wealth and that I it's not about using time to make money it's about using my money to make me more time mm. No, I find that really interesting because a, a lot of the stuff you listen to, if you listen to sort of like like investors and stuff like that, it's like, oh, well, you need to think about your personal finances. So you're earning money uh, by not selling your time, that you're investing in whatever so that you can do that. But what you're speaking of there is just like a really interesting flip on that, essentially, that it's not about the money. It's not about the wealth. It's about the time. That's the most important yeah. I mean that that advice is good advice. So I mean, essentially, what they're saying is, if you invest your money in a certain way, your money then makes money that doesn't require yeah. your time. Of course. Yeah. Um, and and that is a big part of how you generate wealth. You know, the average millionaire has got seven income streams. One of those income streams is going to be 
investing, whether that's investing in stocks and shares, whether that's investing in other in businesses. Um, so I think that's actually, you know, a sound, very wise thing to think about and practice. Of course. Um, we touched on it a little bit before, and I wonder if I can ask you a bit more about it. It's been what I've been sort of reading about the last two days on Twitter and elsewhere about about Basecamp and it, it, this news has sort of blown up. Like, what's your take there? How should someone process reading that reading that memo and that and those policies which which that company have decided to take up and publish? I guess for context. Is obviously there, there was various stuff in there, wasn't there? But the, the the main thing which I think most has been written and talked about was this this policy that employees there should no longer use work channels to discuss sort of societal issues, basically. Yeah. So where to even begin? There is so much that is dangerous and toxic and racist in what was in that statement. And I think the the things that I've been thinking about, so one is I feel such sadness and empathy for the thousands of amazing researchers, consultants, teams, leaders who have been working tirelessly for decades to educate organizations particularly tech organizations run by white men about what inclusion is what diversity is what belonging is why these things are not debatable you know they're not like they're they're not up for question because they are about humanity and when i read that statement yesterday my fear and what is where my sadness is coming from is I I'm very scared that because of who Basecamp are and what they represent, you know, I'm sure we're the same, Nathan. I've got all their books. I had yeah. I have I'm a, really yeah, a big fan of the company fan. generally. So it was like, yeah, it's been it's been kind of unsettling trying to process it all. So because of that, because of the clout they have, I really worry what the consequence consequences will be because essentially what they've done is publicly given others permission to do the same they've given others permission to copy them they've given others permission to use them as a case study and that feels like you know we've just gone 20 years back the way in the wrong direction Mm. And I also really feel for, I just imagine working at base camp and waking up to that news, being a black or brown person, being somebody from a minority group, imagine what that would feel like. That is very traumatic. So, you know, I think that was my, like, emotional response. And then I think the other piece of it is about... You know what? What is what is this really about? It's about power, and it's about them not wanting to share their power, and them deciding that these conversations 
are uncomfortable, unnerving was the word they used. And that is the very definition of privilege. Like, sure, it might be unnerving for you. How do you think it feels for the people who are living and breathing it all day, every day, and who can't decide, you know what, this is quite unnerving. I'm going to turn this off because it's their life. And it's always been their life and will always be their life. So this message of we will decide what politics are allowed and what politics are not is incredibly dangerous. Everything, every single thing is political. Life, being alive is political. That is that is the truth. That is how it is. And by them deciding that they want to close down areas that they don't feel connected with, that is making them feel uncomfortable, is silencing people. Mm. And that is fucked up, for lack of a better phrase. Mm. And, you know, there's far people far more far smarter than me, you know, kind of sharing their, sharing their critique on Twitter, as I'm sure you saw some of them yesterday. And my hope and ask to anybody listening to this is... They have shown us who they are, so now it's time for us to, what's the phrase? I was going to say march with your money, but it's march with your feet, whatever the, you put, right you know, feel, vote, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> vote, yeah. with your, your, vote with your, your money. Yeah. yeah. So you need to find a new provider um, and, you know, don't, if you are give, if you choose to give Basecamp your money, know that you are choosing to give your money to an organisation that proudly announced that they are not an anti-racist organization. It's interesting because uh, one of the most interesting tweets I saw about it was someone said Basecamp are the world's biggest small company. Like mm-hmm. their their reputation, their clout, their reach, and their audience for a company mm-hmm. of like fifty-seven employees, I think it is, is massively mm-hmm. outsized. Yeah, and I think. Um, a lot of people have been talking about the Coinbase yeah. did, made a similar announcement, I think, last year. And obviously, they've been in the news the last couple of weeks for their IPO. And I think their CEO tweeted out yesterday saying, like, oh, kudos to Basecamp for doing this, essentially. And, yeah, I guess it's it, it, it speaks a lot to what you're saying about how platforms are used to, yeah, spread the message and if we're there's these big problems with the, with the system and everyone has a responsibility to think about what they're going to say and the, how they behave is going to be is going to be yeah. interpreted and, and you know i know i know that there will be a lot of people listening to this conversation who that statement was flying around their slack channels yesterday and then today's team meeting they'll be saying did you see the base camp statement and that's the bit where, because I think it's really easy to be like, oh, it's these like fancy folks that are in America. They're like different from us. They've got lots of money. They're like building big fancy products. No. You, when you do that, you're abdicating yourself of responsibility. And when that statement is flying around your Slack and it comes up in your team meeting, like that's your moment. That's your moment to say, what do we think about this? What's our policy on this? What's our stance on this? Who, who's not, who, oh look, we are all a group of white people having this conversation. We should probably have a conversation about that, you know? 
that and that's what I I also hope that 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 people meet that moment. Yeah, completely. I guess, do, do you have, and it ties into this whole thing, do you have any advice for how companies can try and actually have productive conversations, the opposite of shutting down the conversations, but actually have productive conversations and create a culture of valuable conversation and discussion about such complex issues in the workplace, which is a unique environment in some respects? Mm-hmm. Mm. So the first thing I think is not to do what Basecamp did and say, this is Andrea's job. You know, poor Andrea. Like, I don't know anything about her, but she's only one human being. Diversity and inclusion and belonging and advocacy work is not a work, it's not work that one human being can do on their own. Regardless of the race of that person, the gender of that person, this is a collective effort collective team work and the second thing I would do is pay somebody with expertise to teach you how and it's the same as it's the same as hiring anybody with expertise there is somebody out there who matches your budget who matches the time you have available and that's where I would start because I see far too many organizations well, in the worst case, it's left to the black and brown people to like have the conversations themselves about how to make their workplace safe for them, which is completely not good. Um, or they're kind of, you know, we'll set up a committee and we'll have a steering group and we'll we'll figure this out on our own. Get the experts in. This is this is real like I heard um AOC, the congresswoman in New York, she said the other day, and I wrote it in my notebooks, I just thought it was amazing, budgets are moral documents. How much you invest in something suggests how, how much you value it. Yeah, and that, yeah. And it made me think about this, you know, is this going to be, if this is a priority, which it absolutely should be, for all the reasons that we've all known for decades and decades, then you need to spend some money on getting the expert help that you need. And even if your team is three people, five people, ten people, base camp's only 57 people, as you just said, like, it's still a priority. It has to be. Lauren, I've, I've just got three final questions to, to ask you. Okay. The first one, um, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? That working harder makes it easier. Not the case. No. unfortunately no you know for some people it doesn't matter how hard you work how smart Mm -hmm. you are because we exist in a system that is broken and favors the elite few and I think the the kind of and I do think women fall prey to this message more it's like just learn to be more productive optimize your time meditate you know, those things aren't going to fix zero-hour contracts and maternity discrimination and racism and the things that are at the core of day-to-day being so very difficult for many. No, I completely I completely agree. Secondly, if this wasn't your, your mission, um, I guess writing the wrong that, that women are made to feel less mm-hmm. than, what, what would be in a, in a parallel universe, so to speak? <laughs> I think it would be 
to change politics, I think I would be working in politics. Okay. In any particular, you're obviously in Stockholm at the moment. Would you be back in the UK working in politics or in Scotland? Scotland? I don't know. I know, Nathan. This is my uh, this is my big conundrum. You see, because I I think the way politics works that, or how I understand it to work, is it has a very strong connection to place. And my first business was we had our HQ in Glasgow. Scotland was in our mission statement. You know, our website was started. Like you bet, you bet. We were very focused on place. We were very focused on using design and creativity to make Scotland's public sector better. And since I left Scotland and my mission changed, you know, I lived in Manchester for a bit, then I lived in a few different areas of London. Now we live in Stockholm. I don't really have a connection to any place. I've discovered that my connection is to my work, to the people I spend time with. Like I'm not hugely affected by my environment, the place I'm in. So that makes it a bit hard because also if I think, oh, I could, you know, I would want to do that in Scotland. Scotland's politics don't need me (laughs) as much as uh, politics of other areas of Britain, yeah. so yeah wanting to make a change but where yeah mm. but where where to start I guess and then finally Lauren if you could recommend one book for members of the journey further book club to read what would it be yes I brought it here to see this is my recommendation ah. Invisible yeah, Woman by Caroline Criado Perez and this is about exposing data it's a very data-driven book uh to expose the bias that exists in our world that was designed with men in mind and the harm that that causes. I think it's a fantastic recommendation. It's a fantastic book. I think, and it goes right to the heart of the mission you're on now, but also your background and your training and experience in design as well. It's like yes. those two things coming together. Um, Lauren, it's been a it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for that conversation. I think there's so much for people to think about and, and take away there. So uh, yes, thank you so much for taking the time. No, thank you. It's been a lovely way to to start my Wednesday, and you know I would love to continue the conversation with your listeners. I'm Lauren Curry on all, all the internet places. My Twitter and Instagram DMs are always open. Uh, the next bond starts on the 7th of June. So if you are curious about that, if you'd like your teams to go through the bond, don't hesitate to, to get in touch. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the very end. Please do go and check out Upfront and follow Lauren on social. Links are all in the show notes. If you were to leave a rating or a review, I would be really grateful and it will help more people discover the podcast or maybe just share this episode with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting. Thanks again.